0: Yay. Welcome to Camp Adulthood and the Resident Youth. I'm the Resident Youth. And I'm Camp Adulthood. Do we really have to say that every time? Yes. Okay. I have to say it every time. It's brand consistency. Yes, Maddie. Okay. Thank you. Amazing.
1: So we're really excited for today. We're going to go touch back on some fun things that we talked about last week. Um, we have a wonderful friend of mine here with us in the studio slash Maddie's bedroom. Uh, His name is Elliot. He is an educator, a poet, a renaissance man, if you will. And he's going to talk a little bit about his experience. And then we have... We're so excited. We're so excited. Yeah. We also have my dog Benson here, which is really exciting. Um, And then we're going to delve into some hot topics with Elliot as our special guest. So ready to go. Very exciting. Do you have anything you want to follow up on? Um, no, I don't think I don't think so. Do we have any follow-ups? Well, I really wanted to talk more about Girl Boss.
0: Oh yes. Yeah.
1: So uh for those of you who did not listen last week, there is this lovely show on Netflix called Girl Boss, which is based on uh what Sophia how do you say her last name? Amaro um, Amaruso. Her life and our darling guest Katie last week was like it is just so happened such a long time ago and I really like this sounds like I'm making fun of Katie and I'm not because I love her and she's a genius um but she was like it just happened so long ago and I was like wait that happened in 2006 (laughs) slash the year I graduated from college and became a human being so um I hadn't watched it last week but I have since watched it and I'm
0: really I'm almost i watched the the first episode yeah have you watched any of this Elliot?
2: I made it ten minutes into it and oh, then turned it off.
0: And why didn't you like it?
1: She's kind of annoying,
2: but the scene in which she asked him to stay crash at his place was the point that I was like, "Uh,
0: did it hit?" What was that to scene? Him? I'm sorry, I so, forgot. So the first scene,
2: they like she they she picks him up and they go back to his place and they like oh, stop and then she hooking leaves,
0: up. Kind of. I didn't
2: even make it to her leaving. Just where she was like, "Can I crash here?" And then asked him to... Yeah, that was a
0: little weird. Yeah. ...make
2: ocean noises. That was my place of...
0: Oh, uh, you hmm. we were just like, no. Yeah, I I remember that scene now. And what about it made you want to turn it off before we go back to why we both enjoy the show?
2: I think there gets to a point when we're discussing sexuality or when we perceive sexuality on through media, especially in television, media that there' yeah becomes a disconnect or a kind of way of framing kind of how people interact in that way. And you thought it, it
0: wasn't as realistic or...
2: I thought if they're going to set her up, which I don't know what they're doing, but I'm going to guess that they're going to set her up to be this person who's like trying to take control of her life. The way they framed her in that moment was so off-putting. This idea of like, not only did you pick up this guy, but you're now claiming his space... And asking him to do something so that you can fall asleep. Like that strange yeah, there was a strange she like yeah.
0: asked him to sing to her was a little wasn't it that's it was, what it yeah, was. Make yeah, make ocean
2: noises. That can you make little, ocean noises? Yeah. And I can I can totally see how it fits into her narrative, right? This person that is completely comfortable even doing whatever she needs to do, right? But it, for some reason on a hungover Sunday afternoon, it was not exactly what I was looking for. Let's
0: see. I see. So what were your feelings on it, Shay? Well,
1: I, I think I was just thinking about it more, again, in the context that Katie felt like it was this really nostalgic piece. And I was like, to me, that just seems like the world. And I don't really think the world has changed um, that much in 10 years. Um, but it is really interesting. You know, I, j- I just think there were some interesting notes. Like, she had the same cell phone that I had when I was had my first <laughs> cell phone. And, um, you know the way that the fashion is just slightly different than it is now, but not really that different. Um, the way that she's starting this internet company, but people are kind of like, what's the internet? Um, but what's really interesting is the episode I just watched. Uh, she, has this whole thing where she wants to rent some new office space and they're making her dad be the guarantor and she won't have it. Um, and her dad's like, Oh, we're just going to put the name in my lease or the lease in my name. And she's like, no, you know what? I'm not interested uh, because she didn't want to have a man co-signing for her or signing the lease for her. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because you would think in 10 years that would have changed. And I don't think that's something yeah. that's changed. It's and probably I think gotten worse, It's gotten actually. worse. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, maybe that's just because it's something I've been thinking about personally, as I'm most likely going to be looking for a new place to rent this summer. And I make good money, and I probably can't get an apartment without a guarantor, which would have to be my dad. And maybe that just was kind of something – and part of that's living in New York City, but part of that is also I think people aren't – they're a little less willing to rent to a woman, you know? So um, anyway, so that struck me. Um, I don't know. It's a little – I would have to say like seven episodes in, it's a little heavy handed sometimes, but Mm -hmm. I think it's an interesting depiction of kind of, again, this millennial divide that we're discussing, you know, so, and how her experience is so similar and yet so different from maybe what your experience is being a first year graduate. So that was the only thing I wanted to follow up on.
0: I like it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, shall we intro our esteemed guest? Our esteemed guest, yes. So as Shay mentioned before, Elliot is a friend, an educator, a poet, Mm -hmm. um, an all around great guy. So thank you for coming and joining us. Oh, it's
2: it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on the show.
1: Do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself in your own words?
2: Oh, um, so my name is Elliot. I grew up in a small town by the beach. I graduated high school in... Which
0: beach? West coast,
2: east coast? East coast, out on island. Uh, the North Shore. So lots of rocks and very little waves. Um, graduated high school in 2006. Graduated college in 2010. Uh, made the decision to go to grad school because eventually just kept wanted to keep learning and have kind of stayed in New York uh, since then. Um,
0: and where did you go to college? Went to Binghamton. School? Cool.
2: Uh, Binghamton University, which... Had an amazing experience. And, you know, when you go to a state school or a school in New York, everyone kind of comes together in New York City. So New York, for me, has been this experience full of the kind of the people that I went to college and grad school with. We've all kind of gravitated towards here. Uh,
1: so tell us some fun facts about yourself. What do you like to do in your spare time?
2: Uh, I I, I definitely binge watch Netflix shows also, but I, I try and write every day. So I've been writing uh, poetry a lot in the last six months, which has been great. <laughs> Elliot's going to
1: slam poet for us in a little bit. I'm is very really excited. excited.
2: Good. Um, it'll be good. It'll be good. Um, I read a lot. I, try, I read every day. I've been volunteering once a week, which has been a huge change in my life, um, which we'll get to and talk about later. And I guess the biggest thing I do is I grade for school. You know, there's this the divide between school and home or like work and home is is a very thin line for educators nowadays. So I spend a lot of time working on that at home as well.
1: How old are the whippersnappers that you teach?
2: They are in sixth grade, which is a super unique moment, actually, to catch kids at. Um, They're just getting empathy. They're like almost there. They're like trying super hard to get to that place where they can really understand how they affect other people, and they're they're just catching abstract thinking. Yeah. So they get they're able to think these big, beautiful, incredible thoughts. And one of the conversations we have uh, at the school that I work at a lot is uh, how do you balance teaching the foundations that they need, the grammar and writing, with giving kids these kind of spaces to think about the bigger issues in life identity faith
0: um, and with such young kids that's gotta be difficult
2: it can be so I think the interesting thing about a 6th grader is because they're just getting abstract thought there's a big kind of discussion in education of like what do you give them do you introduce them to small abstract ideas like theme and metaphor and kind of let that build into something else, or you give them the biggest ideas, moral questions, quandaries about what it means to talk about the heavier things such as race and power and relations between different groups, and then let them fill it, like, fill it in back. Um, and I have a big belief that you know, if you give a sixth grader the question of power, right? You know, I teach in the constitution, you know, why did they write it this way? Who does it affect? Who is it benefiting? That, though they're hard questions for them, the work that they do together to understand that is so much better than being like, this is the Constitution, right? This kind of more sure, surface level. So it's this ongoing interplay between myself, the students, the administration, and the parents. Oh, yes, actually. the
0: parents. I'm the sure parents, that's a big part of it.
2: Um, of, like, where to frame and what space they're allowed to learn in. So...
1: Um, Elliot, can you talk a little bit more about some of the other teaching experiences that you've had? You're now at kind of a fancy prep school but you've had. I think you've really taught across the gamut, and mm. I think that's really interesting.
2: Yeah, so I, uh, I now work at a small private school. Um, not many kids, you know, a small...
0: How small are your classes typically?
2: Uh, 11 or 12 kids. Oh,
0: wow, that is yeah. really small.
2: There's only about 23, 24 in the grade, um, which makes it so you get to know them incredibly well. But my last school... I was the special ed teacher, English teacher at a charter school. Okay. Um, uptown in Harlem. So, you know, com- the complete opposite demographic. Uh, you know, mostly African American and Latino students. And it was a very, very different space. Um, the school I was at, it was more. I would say it was eighty five percent management and fifteen percent actual instruction. And this school is I would say, you know, sixty percent instruction and forty. And when you say management, what what do you mean by that? Having the kids do what you need them to do.
0: Like right? just basic, like classroom yeah. decorum, like that kind of thing. Yep,
2: yeah. You know. And I think what made that school so interesting is I was able to work with a similar group of kids my second year there also. So I taught them in fifth grade, and then I had them again in sixth grade. And my first year was a struggle. Lots of yelling, lots of anger from my from myself, and, and from the students. But by the second year, they understood who kind of I had, like, was. A decorum with
0: them, kind of thing.
2: Yeah, and I uh, I would kind of control my class through humor rather than you know I'd fire at them, they'd fire back at me, and then we'd move on rather than. The kind of more traditional system. And
0: were those also middle schoolers, or was mm, that a different... Sixth,
2: yeah. sixth grade also. But the big difference is, I think 11 or 12 of my kids had been left back at least once, most of them twice. Oh, wow, so they were older. So they're like 13, 14-year-old sixth graders. So, different world. And then before that, I, um, I did a, a long-term sub-position at a kind of a fancy school down in Brazil, which is kind oh, of how I became a teacher. I was never planning on being a teacher before that. I was actually looking at uh, doing advertising. and um,
0: Very different.
2: Yeah. It was like writing a thesis on comparing um, advertising campaigns and ancient myths to see how you get people to believe things they know not to be true. And I got a phone call. They needed someone to teach an IB class called Language and Literature, which is kind of a class to introduce people to the cultural studies departments that are popping up all over colleges, these you know interdisciplinary programs. Yeah, totally. And um, they needed someone to come down and kind of help write the curriculum and frame how they're going to teach this class because it had just come out. So I went down and did curriculum work for that. That's kind of how I've gotten into education.
0: And do you feel like you're going to stay in education for the rest of your career? Are you a lifer at this point? I think so. And how did you come to that realization after having all of these experiences?
2: You know, there's this interesting question of, you know, teachers don't make a lot, right? It's a... It's an emotional field in which you are put into a child's life for a short amount of time that recycles. And I think that because every year you get something new, you get a new group of kids, that kind of fulfills the newness that people like change careers for. And at the same time, I feel that if you leave the classroom, people that become administrators you know all the administrators at my school still teach a class.
0: Okay, I think that's which a is good amazing, thing. yeah.
2: Right? But I have I just have this big fear of losing the reason that I became an educator, which is to change kids' lives and be at a pivotal moment to help them understand themselves in the world and maybe I would eventually teach teachers, but I don't think that by going from, you know, managing students to managing teachers, that would be a path that I as an emotional human would be able to do effectively. And do you
0: feel like in either in your current role or in the past, like for whatever you define it as making a difference or fulfilling that need in yourself for making a difference, have you been able to do that or is it kind of a work in progress and it's always something to strive for? Or do you feel like there have been points where you feel like your presence has really made a difference?
2: There are moments that you, that you feel like you win. Um, or that it mattered. Um, there was one girl who I remember from my last school who was having a very difficult time, right? She just constantly fighting with her parents, constantly fighting with us as teachers. I remember one night we kind of like locked ourselves, me, her mom, and her kind of locked us in the office after school and just just kind of had this, this is your life if you go keep going down this path a moment.
0: And was her mom part, like, was she on your team with you?
2: Yeah. That's it was
0: helpful, I feel.
2: Yeah, it was just, you, I just remember this night being like, I was crying, mom was crying, and the girl was crying, right? To try and figure out why, why was it so difficult for her to do what she needed to do, right? You know, why it's so combative.
1: Can you talk about what the issues were that she was struggling with?
2: Yeah, I think, um...
1: In the abstract at least? Yeah,
2: it was, and it was, uh, part of it was about a boy, Right?
1: Boys are the worst.
2: Especially when you're 13. <laughs>
1: yes.
2: Um, who was also, like, probably the most difficult kid I've ever taught.
0: Was he, like, a bad apple? He Or would, was he more just, like, misunderstood?
2: I would say a little of both. But he was one of these kids that really believed that he would not live past 21. He would sing.
0: So he was just kind of like, fuck it, whatever.
2: Exactly. And, you know, he... He believed that he was gonna just join a gang and school is a joke. And he would say dead, but he would sing Dead by Twenty One. He would like stand up on his chair in the middle of class and like start like rapping or singing Dead by Twenty One. And, you know, at the the beginning, when I first started working with this kid, we had a hell of a time. Right? He we really went at each other very, very frequently. But by the end of the first year, I mean, we understood each other. And the second year, they actually held him back. Much, I tried to fight them not to because he was already two years older. They held him a third year back. Um, so now he was 14 in the fifth, 14 in the fi- 13 in the fifth grade, right? And he would just come into my class. He would walk out of his class and come across and just come sit in my classroom because he couldn't be in the hall because he'd get in trouble, and he knew that he could kind of, like, sit in my space, and as long as he wasn't messing around too much, it was okay.
0: Yeah. That's probably, at least being in A classroom. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, you're teaching. Maybe he'll get something from it, you know?
2: Yeah. Anyway, so Spender he was dating... Nothing. Yeah, he was dating this girl. Oh, and it meant that, bears. like, in the middle of class, they'd start yelling at each other. It, it, you know... She was obviously doing some things that she probably shouldn't have been, you know, being 13 and... um so, like, that would be brought up vocally and viscerally in class as they fought. And it was madness. Like, madness. Can you imagine, like, sitting there as, like, an actual 10-year-old or a 9-year-old that's been pushed up as two kids are yelling about, you know, sexual activities across your English classroom? So that... Yeah. So that was, like, that was kind of the the background to what this girl was going through. Um, and the honest. the other thing is, like, she was... So kind, but one thing would set her off. Like a single moment and, you know, curses, standing punches, whatever. So it was the... Quick to
0: anger. Yeah. Kind of thing.
2: And I think that was the thing, the biggest thing. And I think that's the biggest thing with people of that age. You know, the, the I guess the kids that are 13 14 that have grown up in post 9/11 America that are fully saturated with technology that are constantly in this producing of an identity online as well as having to balance that at home have
0: you found that like at a, in your previous school and your new school is it similar or do you find it like across socioeconomic backgrounds it's different or do you find it similar
2: i think the the way the way of expression may be different but the some, the total envelopment in a second identity or a, a public persona, a socials persona, and then the disconnect between your real emotions, I think that's universal. I think we deal with that too, right? You know, I my, my kids always joke, they're like, Facebook is dead. We use Instagram. And I'm just like, so you've just traded one platform for another. That's fine, right? It doesn't matter. The idea is that you're still... Your identity is still connected to something external. And it becomes this reference point, right? You're you're curating an identity for yourself. Um and I think like the interesting thing for both of my student, you know, both of my student groups, from the very wealthy kids I work with now to the group that I worked with before was what they want to frame themselves as. Like that's the most interesting thing, right? This
1: Oh, sorry. No, Go on. I think well. it's Go ahead. Go no, ahead. do you think that this is something that's a, a brand like as an educator and as a grown-up who's really not that much older than these kids? I'm sure you mentioned this when I was dealing with the dog, but how old are you?
2: Oh, I did not. I'm oh. 28.
1: And what year what does that mean you were born, Elliot?
2: I was born in 1988.
1: 1988. Interesting. So, um, so do you think there's this has become the kind of this, the fundamentally different experience even between millennials and what are they? Gen Z, is that I what guess. We're calling them,
2: I just call them kids. Children Gen Z, yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: The children of the America. children of America. So, how the do youths. you, you know, kind of um, think about your own experience as a child compared to this whole? I don't even know. It's so. It, there's not even. I don't even feel like we have a real language for it yet, which is why I'm stuttering as if like an idiot. Um, but you know, we weren't ever consumed with this having to create our own brand at seven, eight, nine, mm. ten, eleven years old. And it seems like this is something that really stands out to you. So
2: I think the biggest difference is actually in the way they communicate with themselves. Right? Like
0: Like amongst themselves or like in, like
2: just internal internally. Communication, right? Like if if something was going wrong in my life I could play video games. We had, like, I had that. I was on the cusp of that disconnect. I had reading, right, which is, you know, organized daydreaming from someone else, but it's still an external factor. Or that, but that was pretty much it, you know? Otherwise, I had to sit with my own emotions. And the thing is, when you have a cell phone all the time or an iPad all the time, you don't need to have that internal dialogue with yourself because there's always an external point that you can go to and so the hardest conversations i would have with students is how do you talk to yourself right and i think one of the crazy things about kids is they talk to themselves the way the adults around them talk to them right i could i remember this there was one kid who we hated each other he was the only kid in my class that i actually couldn't I just couldn't get past. And he would, knew how to get under my skin. And I remember one day I was talk—I would talk to him about how the anger that he had was a poison. And he would curse me out or whatever. Um, but he was yelling. I watched his dad yelling at him. And it was the same string of curse words that he had flung at me two or three hours beforehand. And then I was looking at their body language and they were standing the same way. And I'm sitting there like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Like, he's just repeating, right? It's This is not this kid's fault. This is not this kid's fault at all, and it's not even his dad's fault. You know, his dad works three jobs. To call his, we had to call his dad out of work because he cursed me out. And that was the last time. I, you know, like if he acted up, I wasn't calling his dad out of work anymore. Right? That wasn't fair. But it's just this kind of internal communication. How do you talk to yourself? Right? That's I think the biggest difference is we had to learn because we had the space to how to communicate with ourselves. Well, these kids have to learn how to communicate externally much earlier.
1: So do you think it's harder for them to develop their own identity because they're just mimicking constantly where perhaps when we were kids? And I remember having a very, maybe even problematically so, rich <laughs> dream life and imaginary life as a child. Um, and that's what you get when you're a bookish kid before the Internet. But... Yeah, so they don't you don't feel like the kids are engaging kind of with themselves in that way anymore. And now it's all about a mirror of what they're seeing.
2: I think they curate their identity. Oh, that's so interesting. Right? I think it's this unique position where it's not right if we if identity is performative anyway we we act as sister or child or teacher I always joke that I'm missed I get mm, mm, I get to play mr. Mm-hmm. and my last name at work but at home I actually get to wear my first name I talk about it that way with them so that hopefully they can figure that out eventually um, it also makes them see me as a person and not as an authority figure because I'm sure if you think back to your teachers they're just authority figures mm-hmm. right they're not people
1: little forecasting i'm going to talk about something very similar during hot topics it's going to be great yay okay go on
2: but so this idea of curating your identity of like setting up an identity also um they have like multiple instagrams that like represent different facets of my been
0: hearing about that from multiple guests Instas. oh yes yeah
2: i didn't know that's what it was called but i like
0: fake insta yeah
2: it's like this this playing at an identity Right? And I think about us, like, we got checkpoints to recreate your identity. You got, you know, elementary school to middle school. And, and then you got middle school to high school because I know many people, you know, many schools came into one. Mine didn't. It, we were straight through. So it was harder to reframe yourself. And then you get to college and you get to completely reset who you want to be, right? Um, and you get out of college and then have to figure out if that person is still you, like your college self. But I think these they get to play at that at such a young age. Right? They get to one of the cool things about being young at this time is you get to practice your identity production way before we got to in so many different ways. The question yeah. is, is that healthy or not? Right. And I think that that's a much deeper topic because, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I think that that's that's perhaps the conversation that parents have to have with their kids or maybe we have to have with ourselves. Is that something we can do also as adults? Um but it always it always makes it interesting to see what they're doing, what these what my students are doing.
0: Do you think what is the factor of parental involvement? Because I know you alluded to it earlier. Either in disciplinary issues when you have to call a parent in, or parents that are just like super involved that want to be involved. Like, what do you think parental involvement does to help or hinder a student in your experience?
2: The hardest part about working at a private school is the entitlement, right? There is a belief that is pervasive. Oh, this is a gross generalization. I'm going to apologize for making it and then reframe it after. But there is an entitlement that many kids in middle school believe that if they work hard, they deserve an A. And I think the hardest thing to try and teach a kid is it you can work your butt off and still fail. And they just don't understand. Life
1: lesson. Yeah, Um, they
2: don't understand that. They, like, can't understand that. That's not how the world works. And when you're told that you're the best your whole life, you know, I had one girl, they were like ants. I told kids not to have food. They had food. I threw, you know, we threw out the food and they were ants. And she's like, why didn't you clean up the ants before they got in my backpack? And I was like, because I'm not your maid (laughs) <laughs> and I asked you not to bring food into my classroom so you can clean up the mess that you made. And she was like, uh, oh, like didn't know what to say. I was just like, you know, like that, it's like that mentality. Like the, the adult is here to serve me because I'm paying for this education. Right? And so th- compared to the school that I was at before, you know, the parents and I were at, like, I felt, ugh, I felt like in the charter school that I was at. The partnership was more present because I was more often communicating with the parents. And perhaps that's where I am at an educator and something I need to bring to my new school, right? That's definitely the next step in my own development. But because the socioeconomic things that stood in the way, the... the,
0: That's interesting to me because I feel like most people would think the parents that are struggling that are working three jobs wouldn't be as involved and wouldn't be communicating with the teacher, but that hasn't been your experience. No,
2: I mean, there were parents that called me every other day. How is he today? Or they just stopped by my room before they left, right? The interesting thing about my kids at the new school is they're a little... They email me, except for the super entitled ones, right? You know, I find it very interesting that... The kids that are most secure will reach out and say, "Yo, can I have? A, can you meet with me during break so we can go over this?" Of course. And the the students that I would say perhaps are more difficult to deal with, the parents reach out and ask them, for them, right? Will you meet with my child X? And I just think in my head, what are you training your kid? For? You know, what is what is the lesson that that does, right? But. It's yeah.
1: So, when you were in high school, I mean this is a question for all of us I guess, how involved or middle school and earlier, how involved were your parents in your education? Cuz I felt like mine were kind of like go, get A's and that's how it's going <laughs> to be. And I was like, yes, and I did that. And that was pretty much the extent of their involvement. I mean, they were a very big like PTA parents, but in terms of like my actual education, there wasn't a lot of like I'm going to I mean I couldn't my mom would have never called my math teacher to complain about anything.
2: Well, my dad was a shrink. Oh, so
1: Fun Fact, talk about what it's like to have a dad who's a shrink. <laughs>
2: yeah. So And I'm also dyslexic. So I would just fail spelling tests unless he caught and knew that I had a spelling test, and then he would make me spell the words forwards and backwards and I'd get hundreds, you know, because I wasn't allowed to go to sleep until I could spell them backwards also. Um God. So it was always, you know, if I if I fucked up, he'd show up, right? But he was also working two jobs. So, you know, up until high school, the, re- the relationship was disciplinary. And that was okay, right? You know, I think that was an important, it was a necessity for me. But my mom, it's just like a love, she's kind of like a like, the English teacher you may have had in seventh grade who would, like, <laughs> like, if you meet with her, she'd be like, would you like a cup of tea? You know, like, so she... I would she, like to meet
0: your mom she was, FYI. What did she, Was she a stay-at-home mom? Did she have... Uh,
2: no, she, she worked at an arts center. She did oh. marketing for an arts center. Um, but she was always so kind, and so I could be like, I finished my homework, whether I had or not, and she'd be like, oh, that's great. Um, Aww. <laughs> oh, which is... Which, cute. Yeah, it was Mrs. cute. is
1: Elliot's mom. Yeah,
2: you know, the, the good cop, bad cop. Parenting. Um and my dad always said he's like, I hate being bad cop. I hate that I have to be bad cop. Right. So that's like their fun interplay as adults. Right. That identity of I'm have to now perform bad cop. Um but like once high school hit, then the communication was more it was more social than ever academic. You know? You fired. Removing my glass. Removing my glass. Do it. What about you?
0: Um, I don't know. I mean, my parents, like, they they would definitely, like, communicate with teachers. Like, they would go to, like, the conferences and stuff like that. I think they were definitely more involved on the day-to-day with my brother, just because he struggled a little bit more in school. Like, he needed more help, and I was always more independent. But if there was a... Re- like, I don't think they were helicopter parents, but they definitely, like, kept a finger on the pulse. Like, I don't think they ever... Like maybe when I was too young to do it, like I think elementary school, it's different because like elementary school kids are not, I feel like even middle school, it's a little cuspy because some kids are mature enough to be like, I need help. And then some kids need a parent to do it for them. So I think that's a difference, but I never felt like it was too overbearing, but like if I did something wrong in school, like they would know about it and say something.
2: I just think it's funny for us as people that don't have kids. You know, to mm-hmm. try and understand what our parents did when you know many people our age, you know, us twenty-eight-year-olds are just starting to get married. I'm, you know, watch like my friend who threw up in his litter box on Thursday night mm-hmm. because he drank too much. I you know, was talking it was his cats litter yes, box. Yes, yes, it was his cat's litter box. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: know,
2: just like talking about having a kid, and I'm just
1: like, oh my god,
2: like my yeah.
1: So being a bit older than both of you, Mm -hmm. um, my friends, okay, I'm not much older. I just like to pretend, Um, (laughs) but my friends have a lot of babies. Like there are a lot of babies in my life. Um, And it's, it is a really interesting transition to see these kids, your friends go from, like you said, you know, shotgunning beers in your front yard, which is a fun photo we looked at last week (laughs) uh, that I will post on the uh, website uh, to being like my best friend, uh, from college roommate of three years, Kiki has three children and is a nurse and is like super responsible and has a giant house in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm always like, who are you right now? Like, this is insane, but to watch her be a parent and then especially comparing her to some of my, you know, our other friends who also have kids and how different they are. Um, I think it's, it's fascinating me.
2: It's also, we're in New York, right? We get an extra X amount of time before we have to kind of move to that phase. So I... I
0: feel like people outside of New York... Like, do you think people outside of New York move faster because, like, for lack of better phrasing, like, that's That's just the next thing to do? Yeah, like, that's just, like, what you do?
2: Maybe. I, I guess. I just feel, you know, when I was 24... Right, I was thinking like, yeah, hey, you know, I would like to have you know a, a kid by 28, 31. Now I'm twenty-eight, and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> like just just dating is enough, right? Let's let's just find someone that's not absolutely crazy.
0: Oh, sounds like you have sounds like you a get segue
1: into so Elliot is a consummate dater, has dated an acceptable number of ladies, <laughs>
0: um,
1: neither too high nor too low. Yeah. Uh, But I think Elliot should talk a little bit about his experience as a millennial male dating in New York in in the age of Tinder.
2: Mm. I think...
1: We like to ask really open-ended questions and then watch you squirm. Okay,
2: the squirming is happening. Yeah, Um, you
0: just have a particularly interesting experience you want to share. Yeah. I don't know. Uh,
2: I think, I guess I'll just start with dating in New York... Is the most difficult because there's always the next one, right? There is it is decision paralysis, and you get one chance to not to like to not scare someone away. It's not even one chance to win them over. It's like one chance to like not be, not like drive people away. And I think I'm a particularly intense person. You know, my baseline is a seven, and so for people that are baseline sort of three or a four, um, I come across as very high energy.
1: I really want to tell the story about the first interaction I ever had with Elliot, and we can edit it out if Elliot doesn't want this story on the air. Uh, so we, so Elliot and I know each other from grad school at NYU, and I just met Elliot. And this is maybe our second interaction, and uh, we're standing outside a classroom about ready to go in, and Elliot just walks up where we're, like, talking about homework, and he's like, I fucked this girl on a kitchen table last night. And I was like, I don't know you, yep. sir. Yes. And now you're best friends. Oh, and now we're God. best friends. But, like, <laughs> that was the Elliot that I met mm. now, I guess, almost five years ago. Yep. Six years ago. So, um talk about your journey from that person to the
0: upstanding educator you are today it's good still the same Uh,
2: person no not the same person I
0: just
1: I
2: guess I guess the biggest thing is I always want to be 100% genuine with people and that means saying what's on your mind which is a terrible way to interact with people you don't know (laughs) like that is absolutely the way to only go on one date with someone which has literally been my life for the past couple months um Because of, I think it's because of the ability to always have something else, right? You know, I guess, you know, back in grad school, you know, new to New York, fresh-faced and kind of hungoverly bleary-eyed coming to graduate school classes, you know, I was enveloped in kind of party culture, the kind of... Open sexuality that New York brings, and I guess as you get older, you start to realize that that's not really healthy. It doesn't doesn't really bring you anything besides really awkward mornings and hot, like very expensive bar tabs.
1: So, <laughs> um, it has been known to have a cocktail or, or three, two.
2: Yes, yeah, which is also charged. Or, yeah, right, over the years. So I think, so I think here's the biggest difference now between dating at you know 23, 24, in New York, to being, you know, closer to 30, is I don't ever want to not be genuine with the people that I want to invite into my life, right? You know, I could pretend to be, a th- you know, three to four of energy, but then, you know, by the third date, like, who am I lying to? But at the same time, you have to invite people in. And, you know, that immediate, you know, that scaring people. There is some compromise involved. Right. And there, I, that space is something I guess I'm still looking for, right? But I guess now I would much rather have a real interaction with someone than fuck someone over nothing, right? And I think that that toggles back and forth depending on the emotionality and how long it's been since you've been with someone and kind of what group I'm with, right? You know, when you're the the seventh wheel— At a party, which happens, right?
1: It's my life,
2: pretty much. Yeah. So When when you're the seventh wheel at a party, I don't want to go out and be hitting on people. I want to spend time with the people I care about, right? I don't get to see them very often. And this, I think, is the biggest thing, right? When I was 24, I would go and try and pick up people. I would leave the people that I came there to see and go and interact with strangers for the sake, I guess, of trying to pick them up, right? And now... If I get a chance to see my friends, then I wanna see my friends, right? I wanna see these people that I have these deep connections with. Yeah, and so what that means then is you need to be using Tinder, JSwipe, et cetera, to have the number of random interactions to bring people in. But I guess the biggest thing about dating is you just both have to be in the right space. Right. That's really. It's really just a you know. A right time, right space, right time. Because I know, so many dates that have gone really well, but people are either coming out of relationships or et cetera, et cetera. And I've had dates that went really poorly, but people were in the right space, and then we've continued dating for a while. So I just have no. Like, have which n-
0: one is worse? Yeah, I, don't I have know. no
2: idea. I just have no idea. So I guess.
0: What was, if you don't mind us asking this, what was the last date you went on and how did it
2: go? Uh, I went on one earlier this week with this very, very cool person, Um, and I think I just scared her off. You know, I I got super passionate talking about education, and I, like, watched her go from being open to, like, leaning forward on the table, like, leaning forward and listening to, like, closing herself off, and... I guess for me, that's a recognition of I talk too much and don't ask enough questions, and you know, kind of project my own identity over a person's rather than invite them in, right? And so, I guess that's the biggest part of dating in New York is, you know, you're inviting someone into your life. And I have an amazing roommate who always says, like, the way you date well is you convince someone that you have an amazing life and they should come join you on it, rather than say trying to prove it, right? You're not proving anything; you're offering an invitation.
0: That's very wise. Is quite wise, yeah. yeah. Which
2: what's, is why he's not single. Right, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, you never know. Um, what's, do you have any, like, New York dating horror stories, oh like God. nights yeah. you want to forget?
2: Oh my God, That yeah. you also
0: want to share to all of our listeners? All yeah. of our six listeners.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess the worst date I've had in a while is 15 minutes into the, into the date, she started making, like, a fish face. Like a. Like and just like would like <laughs> lean over and like put her lips out. I wish some, everyone
0: could see oh this right now because it's really special. Like just, a duck face, like puckering yeah, up. Like That's just so kiss
2: weird. me, and then after I kissed her, she's like, "So I know we're getting drinks, but I'm really hungry. Can we go for food?" And I was like, "Oh."
0: But wait, back up, back We gotta rewind this. Yeah. So you went, you saw, she like.
2: It was like, "Let's go let's grab a went. drink." Let's no, grab- but you,
0: but you. Like the way that you tell the story, like she was puckering up, but then you went for it. Oh, of
2: course, because I mean, I yeah, I would make you kiss anyone.
0: That's
2: that's not true, but (laughs) that may be true, but that's not true. Um,
1: I mean, I would kissing is innocent. Kissing is innocent. Kissing is.
2: My friends reminded me of a story last night, where I was coming, I was you know had partied really hard earlier in the evening, and was a. I, I don't smoke cigarettes anymore, but I like went to go bum a cigarette from a person on the street, and it was this like 50 year fifty-year-old lady, you know, kind of beautiful, a little sad, and we ended up having this conversation that she, you know, she hadn't, no one had kissed her in ten years, right? And That's I just like re- reached over and made out with her, and <gasps> right then my whole group of friends like, like walked up. <laughs> like,
0: what is going no context. on?
2: Like no idea.
0: That's amazing. So, so um. That is amazing. Yeah,
2: so that's that's kind of. Did you
0: ever? Was it just like that was the one direction you didn't follow
2: up or? I don't think anything? I, I don't. I, didn't, I just it was just like one of those things that you know my drunk self that's was nice like.
0: So yeah, it's strange. That's a nice
2: thing. That's strange. Um, but I guess I guess similarly, you know, so I was on this date and. She, so she was like, "I'm hungry," and I was like, "Okay, we'll go get food." And, and you're and, like,
1: "How do you feel about McDonald's?"
2: She, no, I mean, like we went to like a nice, you know, <laughs> get it's like a, a nice burger, guy. You know, yeah,
1: but it was. Burger.
2: She basically was like, "You're not ready to commit with me, so we're not going any further." Why is
1: anyone talking about committing and on I the was just first date? Like, this it is was just why a I very, can't. This is why I'm a Spencer.
2: It was a very, it was just a very strange interaction in which the projections of what you're supposed to do on a date were kind of just undercut for this like superficial. Either you're going to commit, like we're, we're either doing this or not, and I just miss misread the stop signs along the way and I guess really what was wanting to happen is I think maybe this girl just like wanted a nice hookup without any, like, without too much, whether to sleep together or not, just, like, a nice human interaction, and I just misread it every cue, (laughs) right? Could not have possibly misread this worse. So it was, like, very awkward. She, like, yelled at me at the end of the date. She's like, you're not going to get me an Uber. You're not going to get me an Uber home? And I was like, "No." I've paid for the drinks and the food. Like, your only responsibility is to, like, get here and get (laughs) home. And she did not like that.
0: I've, like, never had a guy pay for my Uber. Maybe I
1: had one. T- I mean, if I like, if it's a one night stand, then you're leaving. The guy should pay for your Uber.
0: Well, then I should have had many Uber <laughs> that were not paid for. Thank you very much. Um, for the record,
2: I guess my question for you guys is, you know, what are the expectations then for these kind of interactions? Right? Like, I as a guy just never know, and I'm just yeah. vaguely trying to figure out what the parameters. People are setting up from.
0: No, I, mean, I mean I know girls that like do have like very set standards where they're like, I won't go on a second date with a guy if he doesn't pay something arbitrary like that, right? And I I always think it's nice, and I think part of like whatever you want to call it, like dating, like the courting, mm-hmm. like the weird social dance, cool. like part of it is being like, I'm not a trash human, I have a job. I'm not, like, a deadbeat human. Yeah. And, like, part of that is, like, paying for things. And the flip side of that is, like, I think naturally, like, if you're going on multiple dates with people, like, it ends up evening out. <clears throat> like, if someone... Like, if I am, like, oh, I really want to go to this comedy club, like, I'm gonna get two tickets and then you can meet me there. And then, like, the guy ends up getting the drinks because I bought the ticket. You know what I mean? Like, if, if you demand things, then that just means you're... It's just weird to me. But I think it ends up evening out. So on the first date, like, yeah, if a guy wants to buy drinks, that's yeah. fine. But I is, don't think there's any, like, I don't have any expectations.
1: No, but it's also a little bit about the dance, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, so if mm-hmm. I go out with a guy, like, I'm never not going to pretend that I'm going to pay for at least my half, if not the whole thing. The check dance. The check dance. <laughs> and you have to, like, play <laughs> it. did,
0: like, an actual
1: dance. You know? <laughs> it was very nice. Like, so you have to be aware of, of that, but I mean, it is kind of subtle, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, if I say, oh, I'll pay or I'll, let's split it, and the guy's like, yeah, sure. Then I'm a little, like, put off. Not that I necessarily expect them to pay for it, but I want them to be like, no, no. And then I want to say, oh, no, I insist. And then they say, okay. And I'm like, okay, great. And then I would totally go out with them. Like, there are a lot of girls. and mean, you have to understand, Elliot, that Maddie and I are probably the two most, like, reasonable
0: Daters, I we're, think. Pretty chill. we're pretty chill. But yeah, so. I think there are a lot of girls like the one you went out with that yeah. are like have the expectation. I just of paying.
2: I just wish I knew. I guess this is why I'd much rather it would be introduced to someone through a friend yeah,
0: is absolutely. because you and, have
2: a reference point. Yeah. Right. So
0: if you're like, this person is acting weird.
2: Right. You know, and I think the other thing that happens is, you know, to go through, oh, I'm a teacher. Oh, I've lived abroad. Oh, I'm a poet. Like, that's so overwhelming amount of information. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a good friend that she always says, like, tell them one thing. Like, you get one talking point for an evening. You are a teacher. And that's your conversation. And the second date is you write. And the third date is you've lived somewhere. Or whatever order yeah. you want to do it that's in. That's
0: interesting. Yeah.
2: Because, and this is this whole idea of like gradually introducing, mm-hmm. going from a three to a seven. right? And that's, I guess, because to meet a stranger is the coolest part is you get to learn all these things about someone. Mm-hmm. But at the same point, at one point you're just monologuing. Right at one point are you just soliloquying your story to try and get yeah. someone to like you
1: well and that's really internet listeners I'm an old curmudgeonly spinster and <laughs> I don't date and this is why and it's partly goes to what Elliot was saying earlier about I'm at a, a point in my life when I want to spend time with people I want to spend time with people that I care about and blah 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 and oh god I fucking hate first dates and I hate telling this you know Curated story that's basically a fiction By the time I like You know get to it's just So fake and I'm like And then you go on I think the average I've heard for people who are successful in Internet dating if you're judging success by Like a long term monogamous relationship Coming out of it is you have to Go on 50 to 70 first dates I would rather Eat the cockroach that the dog Was eating earlier like I'm not even Kidding um and that, and I'm a person who likes meeting new people. Like I, I don't know, but I think it's also what you're saying is kind of sad because, you know, Elliot, I've known you for many years now, and like one of the things that's really special and charming about you is that you are the super passionate person. So I feel bad, kind of, for those girls who are like, ugh, I don't want to, I don't want to.
0: But then to it's someone. also like if they do that on a first date, wouldn't you rather that happen on a first date than like a sixth date? Yes.
2: Mm. Oh yeah. I would assume. I always think, you know, the fact. You know, I've had multiple long-term relationships. And the fact that we didn't work is just the fact, I think it, I'm saying the fact very often, but (laughs) it's just that I've saved myself from divorces, right? You know, to be in a three-year relationship and have it end is really saying, we could have gotten married, but the problems that we had would have eventually ruined us. So I'm glad. Mm -hmm. My dad always tells me he's good about this because he didn't get married until much, much later. 37 he says the best person the best thing a person can do for you is give you your time right the best thing you can do for yourself is know when to how and when to use your time so if a person's giving you red flags you don't need to spend time with yeah. them. you know if a person isn't treating you right you don't need to be with them you know if if there's things that you don't think you can fix then get out right he tells, a, he tells a famous yeah. story of uh, he was picking a girl up from a date, he rode the elevator up he knocked on the door, the mom let him in, and the girl is yelling at her mother like oh. screaming at her mother from the other room and the mother's super embarrassed and the very beautiful girl, and she gets ready and they get to the elevator, and he's sitting in the elevator and they're going down, and he's like, if she talks to her mom like that, how is she going to talk to me? And he gets out, and he's goes like this, like puts his hand out and says, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go out with you. And she goes, what? Why? And he goes, because the way you talked to your mom was so ridiculous. And he hits the elevator button and steps out. And it's like think like that takes balls. That yeah. takes a confidence and an understanding. And I guess being single for a long time to <laughs> to be able to kind of have that recognition. And I guess so for these girls that, you know, I obviously kind of blew out of the water with the intensity, but at least they know what they want. Right, I don't always yeah. see it as a You're made. talking
0: right now, too, like the stories that you've been telling are like the girls being like pushing away, like not leaning in after a while. But I'm sure there's a lot of girls that you've dated where you were the one that was like, "Wow, I'm moving away from this. Like it, it goes both ways. Honestly. Absolutely.
2: I just think I just don't I don't I want to make sure that I'm not demonizing or like framing the kind of interactions that you have, because honestly, most of these people were wonderful people. Right, I think that that's the hardest part, and that's like these these crazy gender roles that we get stuck in. Right, like the hardest part is knowing that you could be a wonderful person if the timing was different, if there were three more drinks, if it was a better bar, if it was not as loud, if it wasn't a two. Like whatever the circumstances are, this obviously could have worked because you can. I have a big belief you can be with
0: most. people. I'm sure there
1: are some actual trash humans. Though. Oh, of course, there's yeah, many. But I agree. With, this is something that I've said for a very long time. Like. When I'm pondering my own singleness, I'm like, I don't understand because like, I get along with pretty much everybody. Like, I like people. I'm a nice person. I think people like me. Maybe you guys both hate me. I don't know. Um, so why then is it so hard when I agree? Pretty much everybody should be able to get along with everybody, yeah. you know? I think
0: part of it, and you told me this before, and Elliot, you can tell me if you agree, that especially men, and I don't know why it is this way and maybe it's with women too. It's just not as obvious, but like people like make a choice mm. where they're like, I'm going to be single and kind of just like do whatever and like flit around. And then they're like, hits a certain point and they're like, I'm looking for something serious. Whoever is like one of the options, quote unquote, like when that window is available is the person that's going to be chosen to the wall. Right. It's like, even if you're compatible. And sometimes it's with the same person. Like, you might kind of be, like, friends with someone or, like, know someone through dating, and you could be, like, going along, and then all of a sudden they're like, all right, I'm ready for this, either consciously or subconsciously, and then you're there. Like, I totally think that that's a thing that happens. Yeah, it's really interesting.
2: I think that other thing is, like, you, you know, we really want that spark, too. You want that electricity. You want that. And that's so hard to, like curate at the right time like I think of all the people that I've had the most intense relationships were probably when I was the least available and I wish I had been available because I would have had very healthy probably relationships with these people but I wasn't in a headspace where I was willing to commit or was you know had had things in the way that kept me from being in really healthy awesome relationships because I was an idiot right like that the men s- are idiots oh I mean, takeaway. Yes, all of us. I think uh, just to be stereotypical and awful. I think men are stupid because we ignore what's right in front of us, and women can be crazy because they make connections where there may or may oh my not god. be there. Elliot,
1: you said this to me. I actually wrote it down many, many years ago to Allison and I, and I was just like, Elliot knows the secret to the universe. Um, and I have I'm looking it up because you said it. However, you said it that day. I was just like, Oh my god. I'm gonna see if I, can I think that's it.
2: so true. Like my friends, especially ones in relationships, like they can know something is wrong. And they're just like
1: la 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 yes. la. Like um, this, we'll get do you over think this. It's 2013. 2013.
2: Yeah, just women sense. are crazy because they see connections where there are one, and men are idiots because they don't see the connections that are there.
1: Oh, that is Ellie's I Do you like that? Genius.
0: Now, of course. Sorry
1: that I creepily wrote down you, what you said. No, in 2013. No, no, please, when please. We really didn't know each other <laughs> that well. No, that's great.
0: Um, no, it's true. And I think I mean you can tell me if you're experiencing. I feel like guys it's kind of like like you see them and they're kind of in these not serious relationships they're just kind of like bopping around then all of a sudden they're like I'm engaged
2: yeah yeah
0: that's a phenomenon I've seen a lot and it's very like jarring yeah
2: I guess my question is what is that switch right I went from you know kind of sleeping around and I actually left New York when I came back to New York I was very very ready for a relationship and then after that relationship ended, I spent a very long time being a single. I tried to date a couple of people, but was not emotionally ready, and kind of knew that, and so self-sabotaged that relationship, those relationships. <laughs> As enough. one
1: does. Yeah, yeah.
2: And then took a very long time of not dating people. Right, spent almost a year single, just because I knew that there was, there was not, you know. There was no, there was no fertilizer in the soil, right? There's nothing that can grow right now in in my emotional space. I think that's the biggest thing. I was talking to friends last night, and I was like, "What I love, they've friend, They've been together since high school. You know, they've only been with one person. They've like are now married." I talked, you know, what I love about spending time with you is you're you sort sure of teach me how to create the space that can grow into a relationship. I like watch how you treat each other.
1: Oh, that's good. That's yeah. very true.
2: Because yeah. it's not. It's not about the actual people. It's about the space they create to allow themselves to be natural and grow together and be trusting. I think guys that remain in these like non-committal relationships give like, just enough space to feel comfortable, but not enough space for anything to grow. And um, that's when you think about it, it's kind of sad. Yeah.
1: So what's your goal then? Where are you in your life and what are you searching for?
0: You would like to date elliot you can <laughs> oh my you can
1: email us at, <laughs> Hello at camp but we'll set you up on a date maddie's secret goal in life is to be chris harrison from the bachelor <laughs> nice. so we'll totally
2: that,
1: set that up yeah we won't do that
2: with elliot but, but i don't know we might <laughs> i guess i want someone that makes me better by being with them right um it's a call cool. The last person I dated was a real introvert. I
0: can hear the panties dropping. Continue. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just
2: think, like, the last person I was with was a real introvert, and I'm a real extrovert. and it's
0: difficult.
2: I think you can come to, like, you can both head towards center, but at some point, you have to be with someone. Like, the things that made me the best were the things that bothered her the most about me. And that kind of value breakdown can't be... Like, you can't get past there. I, you know, I think I would have stayed with this person. We would have eventually gotten married and had kids. But she was smart enough to know that it wouldn't work in the future. And it took me a very, very long time. Like a like a ghost hoining its, like, bloodstain to figure that out, you know? <laughs> that, like, oh, you knew us better than I did at that time and I would have stuck it out right and that would have made us both very unhappy in the long run so I guess I guess what I'm looking for and I don't know what that is um I think dating is about finding what you'll never put up with again rather than because you know the, the idea of the one like the how I met your mother there's one is the stupidest thing in the world you know it's not about one person there's not one person for you there's Many different types of people that you can be with, and you can have many different life paths because of that. It's about, you know, I know I can't be with a real, you know very intense introvert who can only spend two or three hours you know out. I, I, I can't be with someone that's hyper materialistic because I'm a teacher and I won't be able to afford that lifestyle, right? I can't I can't be with someone that doesn't at least use some kind of art to fill themselves up. Um, and that's fine, right? It just narrows down certain groups that I know I can date. And I think that, like, that's the most important part of of what I'm looking for. Is I don't know exactly. You know, I know I want someone that eventually wants a family. I know I want someone who, you know, likes to learn, who volunteers. I'm a Jew, so that, like, that's Helpful. a whole <laughs> baggage right there, you know, <laughs> while grandma's alive. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. People can pretend.
1: Yeah. People can pretend. I mean... I from a very Catholic family and all my cousins that married Jews are doing awesome. All my cousins who married Catholics are divorced. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> that's okay. just a guilt complex all yeah, I mean, around, all,
1: all over the place.
2: Yeah. Um, so I guess that's what it is, right? You know, it's not about the one. It's about whatever coming together and balance you can bring.
1: But you're looking for a wife and kids eventually. That's I think, your long-term I think so. goal.
2: I think so. I mean, it's it's hard to have kids in a world where you look at kind of the environmental oh this got heavy but it's hard to have kids when you look at a world like i don't really believe humans are going to last more than the next 500 years there's not enough resources right and so but like your
0: kids are not going to They'll be dead in
2: five hundred years. Yeah, I agree. But then I have to like tell my kid at some point, like I'm setting you up so that your grandkids are gonna die, right? Because of like.
1: But maybe they dis- won't. Maybe that's what's beautiful is that that kid is gonna be like, "Dad, you're wrong." Right. You know, and that's
2: so, special. I mean, I do want to have kids, but I think that there's this there's this terrifying nagging in the back of my head and that like we we are not making it off this planet. Sure.
0: But I I'm going to challenge that cuz I think if you look at our parents generation like the boomers like think about especially you guys were born in the 80s like people thought that we were going to die in a nuclear holocaust with the Russians, right? right. Like people right. have been grappling with this with this issue.
2: Yeah, like since the bomb dropped, we realized sure. we can destroy ourselves. Yeah. yeah.
0: So even you know, whatever the perilous thing is that weighs on you. I think our parents had the same questions. Mm.
2: I think if I really believed it, I wouldn't be an educator, right? I'd like, go into banking. Yeah, because then you would right. just
0: be, like, nihilistic. You'd be like, whatever. Right. Make
2: as much as you can before it goes, right? Right. But.
0: Is that
1: why you're in banking, Maddie?
0: No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I'm, like, not making the big bucks. Maybe if I did not that. Not yet. One day. Wow. Um, So... Do we want to transition to some poetry? Yes, I'm just going to say... One of the
1: things that Elliot writes about so beautifully is relationships and his place in the universe, so I don't know what he's picked for us today, but tell us a brief history of yourself as a poet, and then delight us with your talent. Mm.
2: So, um... I'd kind of do two. I started doing poetry in middle school and got involved in slam in college and then had a group of friends that uh, we'd like smoke and hang out and I would uh, improvise poems. So that's kind of my, the way I most connect nowadays is kind of just making it up as I go. So I'll do one of those and I'll read um, something from uh, a notebook that I have. So yeah, let me see if I can hunt through the, the notebook space first and cool. pull one up. That's very
0: exciting, I right? know. Oh. So yeah. So is that notebook like what goes in that notebook? Is it like just everything and everything? This or is,
2: this is the subway. A more
0: curated thing.
2: This is kind of like the subway notebook. Um I kind of write best when I'm um, in between spaces. Right? It's very hard for me to write in my home, which is kind of a unique problem. I know a lot of friends that like really need to kind of ritualize their their art. But for me, it's always like be between things. It's kind of when it happens, um, and I know I do a thing where I get really wasted, or if I'm out too late, I'll start, and I, you know, I'll start trading poems for things. I try and mm-hmm. like barter words for human interaction. So,
1: I like just, that, Eliot. That's special.
2: Um. So yeah, so this is one that I wrote. Uh, it doesn't have a name. Beholden to so much, I carry little, just memory and the permanence of, eek, uh, permanence of ink, often trading the image of one for the affect of the other. It's like a shifting sand, a water cycle, a balance and a weighing of scales, that has kept these words safe and whole in the seedhouse of my gullet. And always, always, with the first whispers of spring, I am duty-bound to plant and plant and plant.
1: Yeah,
2: I liked have, um, that. Um, that was connects. really good. I would like
0: you to read one more. Was beautiful. Please. All right. Um, uh, she is very pushy with artists.
2: I'm really pushy with the artists. I'm, really right. good, the good, artists. Uh, I'm gonna do. Uh, I'll do an improv one. I'll make it up for you guys.
1: This is really
0: special. I wanted Elliot to do this for years.
2: <sighs> the city is a broken thing that swings between red lights and green lights, subway slings, and the full belly of the Lower East Side. It's tips itself in whiskey glass and rings itself round the heads of those wandering northward and southward, carrying them across islands to make their way home. We live in canyons with the many-eyed windows all staring down at us, knowing nothing what happens inside the small boxes stacked on top of each other that we often call home. These tombstone caskets stacked and stacked and stacked, and sometimes the city resurrects itself, reminds me that it's not a dead, empty space that the shadow-filled eyes can actually see, and in those moments the quiet nod of a stranger... But looking at a homeless man and actually seeing him, if not able to give any money than just to recognize blood inside skin, then perhaps this place is more than just the belly of the beast, the stranded empire of those that want too much and drink too much and spend too little time in communication with themselves. The s- subways rock us back and forth, headphones plugged in, plugged in, plugged into something, but this city sings quietly, like shadows in the early mornings of 4 a.m., drunken revelries when you head home trying to remember what got you there. There is a secret to this space that it sutures itself open and holy, when the dawns come easy, when the friend's laughter gathers in your gullet and the ink sings.
0: That was fully really improvised. That was improvised. That's
2: incredible. Yeah, I use the I try and like start with the hook, like the city is a broken thing, as like a place to start. But the rest of it, yeah, that's for you guys. Thanks,
0: that's awesome. Elliot. That was
1: amazing.
0: That is really great. What a talent. What a talent. What a talent. Oh, it's really all special. Right. Should all we right, transition into hot um, topics. So I we think do so. a segment that we kind of lazily called on the first episode Hot Topics and it's kind of stuck and we haven't rebranded. But it's basically Shay and I just kind of think throughout the week of topics, things in the media, things that we've read and watched and whatever. And we kind of present them, pose a question, and then we all chat about it. So would you like to do the first one, Shay? Um, Or would you like me to start? I mean, I, I have a good one. I can start.
1: Go for it. All right. So I was reading a really interesting article uh, today in the New York Times called You, Letter U uh, Can't Talk to Your You Are Professor Like This um, it's by a woman named Molly Worthen um, and basically the article talks about how um, people, or students in this day and age talk so informally to their professors and how it's a real problem and how kind of why people are kind of rebelling against that and wanting to kind of go back to more um, old-fashioned etiquette. Uh, so I thought it was really interesting um, the question that was kind of brought up by uh, Ms. Worthen was uh, is this just another case of scapegoating millennials for changes in broader culture or is this an actual problem? Um, and she kind of goes back and forth. I don't didn't really feel like she came to a definite conclusion, but one thing that she said that I'd never thought about when, you know, using a professional title, my dog is currently eating cockroaches under Maddie's bed, so it's problematic. Uh Um, I don't know. Uh, But is that by using these titles like doctor or professor or whatever, it, uh, and these are her words, ensures respect for all university professionals, uh, regardless of age, race, or gender. And it's uh, really a tool to protect uh, disempowered minorities, which I thought was really fascinating um but my real takeaway was because I find this a lot I do hiring of our interns at our office and um it's really easy I mean, these kids and especially because we work in a creative space are never prepared for these interviews and they always do say something that my boss is like are you fucking kidding me that this person just came in and like didn't have a high energy or wasn't prepared or, you know, acted really familiar or asked me something that wasn't appropriate. Um, but she says, yes, students who call faculty by their first names and send like e messages are not seeking a more casual rapport. They just don't know they should do otherwise. No one has bothered to explain to them. Um, and having, and, you know, making students use a title is quote, not condescension, that's how you say that. But the first step in treating um, students like adults. So I thought that was really interesting, um, you know, that this kind of, again, passes into the business world and what you guys thought about that. You know, I, when I was in college, definitely everybody was professor or doctor. And even years later, I'm in touch with some professors still. And like, I cannot call the woman who was my undergraduate advisor Debbie, no matter like how much she wants me to call her Debbie, it's Dr. Rosenthal. 12, 13 years later so um, I think that's really interesting um, and how do we think we can really teach the youth of today um, how to have these this professional etiquette that isn't being taught and I do think one thing that's interesting for Elliot and I because we did come through creative writing programs at different stages in our careers, you do use a lot of first names with your professors because they're trying to foster a creative community but outside of that you really shouldn't be using those um, informal titles. So discuss while I save the dog.
0: The dog might be dying. Um, I guess I can tell one story about this. Mm -hmm. So I think part of what Shay was just talking about is like the last part of what she said, like building a creative community and a place of learning. I think that there are ways to do that without sacrificing the professionalism and treating people like an adult. And one professor that I really loved at NYU, Jonathan Zimmerman. He's a history professor there, and he's written a lot of great books and different things. And he, I took two different semesters worth of classes with him. And at the first day, like the first day of the semester when students would come in, and these were big, they were like 60 to 80 people. They weren't small classes. He would, as people were like sitting down and like getting their books out, he would come up to everyone and like look you in the eye and shake your hand and say, hi, I'm Professor Zimmerman. Thank you for taking my class. And like the first time, like there was no preface. He was just, it seemed very natural. He would just walk into the crowd. It was like in a big lecture hall and he would just be like, hi, I'm so-and-so. And And then on the last day of the class, like as you were leaving, he would like give you a pat on the back or like shake your hand and say, thank you for coming. And like throughout the class, he did a lot of other things to kind of foster a familial kind of environment. And I think just simple things like that, like making eye contact with people, it seems so simple, but if you're an authority figure, it does go a long way. But I mean, he was always Professor Zimmerman, like he never, I never called him Jonathan or anything like that, but I felt very comfortable speaking up in class and um, going to his office hours and having discussions with people that I didn't know in the class. And I think it's little things like that, where you can kind of have the lo- the level of, I'm an authority figure, I know what I'm talking about, I demand respect, but also meeting people face-to-face on a human level by shaking their hand, looking them in the eye, hearing what they have to say and responding to it, so that's kind of my takeaway from that.
2: I mean, it makes me think, you know, at the charter school, you were trained to stand in the hallway, and the kids line up, and you shake, look them in the eye, and shake every one of their hands. At the end of the year, you teach them how to write a resume, you know, there's like practice interviews, but... That's in a very different socioeconomic world, right? And my students my students at my private school are remarkably polite. I brought my parents to a, a fundraising event, and the kids were there. And they, every single one of them walked up, shook my parents' hand, looked them in the eye. One of them like, had a good conversation with my mom. I like, you're amazing, thank you. <laughs> um, and so I think that this idea of the fact that they've made it that far to college and not had that is a little weird. It kind of talks about the lack of what we, a certain type of education that we've put on parents, but really may not be their only, like just their responsibility. Um, you know, why don't we have a basic logic class? Why don't we have a life skills class? Many places do, but not everywhere.
1: But I also think this, um, you know, we talk a lot about this horrible kind of nastiness that's put towards millennials. And I think. Ms. Worthen made a really good point by saying, you know, no one is teaching these kids, whether they're lower socioeconomic or higher socioeconomic or somewhere in the middle, no one is teaching them. So, and then they get to college or to their first professional job and they fuck up. And instead of the professor or the boss being like, hey, so just FYI, it's not a big deal, but please proofread your email, especially, you know, or whatever. Um,
0: So, and in why don't we foster too, that? Yeah. I wonder too, like, you were talking about, like, people that come into your office. It's like, when you're interviewing for jobs, no one gets an email that says, this is what you did wrong. Like, this is why you didn't get the job.
1: Well, and the you problem... You know what I mean?
0: And no one stops yeah. an interview to be like, I'm not hiring you, but this is the reason why. Because you did X, Y, and Z. Yeah.
1: And the problem is, for me anyway, the kids that ask for feedback, which... We aren't hiring them because they're creatively not right for our company, but they're very smart kids. They're doing great work, but they are not right for us. And the kids that come and interview that are smart and are doing really excellent work, um, but we don't hire because they interview poorly, they're not the ones that ask for feedback because they don't know that that's a thing you can do. Yeah, Yeah. so I think that that's really interesting and one thing – not to be like, I'm so great, but that I try to do when we're working with these college kids is you know, be like, hey – This is how you do this. Um, But anyway, I just, I felt like I came out of college knowing that, but apparently it's not something that's taught anymore.
2: Well, I just, I think one, one final point on this. Um, One of the things that I realized uh, when I was working kind of in the hood was that all respect is earned, right? My students would not give me respect until they saw that I respected them rather than kind of in my new school where respect was automatically given because I was an adult right and I I kind of liked the other way I liked having to earn it many many of the teachers found it very disrespectful Mm -hmm. but they never earned it they didn't they didn't work towards treating the students in a way that would and this is not everyone this is one of those like generalizations but some people had trouble had trouble earning the respect of their students because they expected it And this is an interesting question, right? Do you, because you're older, do you get respect because you're older as traditionally? Or in our modern day, is it always still earned?
1: So she talks about this in the article, or it was actually in the comments. I never read comments, but I did because I wanted to be well-prepared. And some obvious college kid had been like, well, you know, the professor has to earn my respect and da-da-da-da-da. Um, and someone responded like, yeah, they have, they've spent 15 years in college to get a PhD. They have your respect. Like they've earned it. Um, and, and I, I thought that was interesting. I think
0: that goes along with yeah. what Elliot was saying. that Like that is a form of respect. Yes. Is like the time that you put into yeah. your profession and your craft and things like that. But it
1: sounds like what Professor Zimmerman did is a very easy way to mm-hmm. earn respect and trust and takes, is no skin off his back, but that's very you know savvy I think educator
0: and I think some people confuse not confuse, but I think people have different definitions of the word respect like what you're describing is I think like a higher level of respect where it's like we've been kind of through something together you and me on like a personal level and I see you as another human being I respect what you have to say like that's what it is but I think some people hear the word respect and they're like well I'm not going to, like, punch you in the face when I first meet you. Like, I'm going to treat everyone with a level of, like, polite decorum. And for some people, that is respect. And they're like, well, everyone deserves to be not treated like a trash bag in public. You know what I mean? And then other people hear the word respect and they're like, it's a little bit of a higher threshold. So I think it's hard even to talk about it because people have different definitions of what it is. Right.
2: I definitely think about some students I had that would fight because, you know, he disrespected me. Right? I was like, he gave you a side-eye look, like, yeah. right? And I think that this becomes such an interesting conversation that I don't think I have the cultural literacy to talk about at the level that I would like to, but the way respect operates in different communities, right? The way it operates in a classroom, the way it operates in a family structure, the way it operates in a workplace, and depending on the workplaces, it becomes a, it becomes a very complex... Social interaction that has kind of prearranged or predetermined definitions that, like, think about it if you're someone coming from a different culture or someone who, you know, maybe English is not your first language or you've, you know, moved from New York to someplace out west. Like, the realignment of yourself with the kind of what respect is, that social context, can be confusing, dangerous. And something you have to pick up very, very quickly. And I think that's what the story is saying is that these college kids aren't picking it up fast enough.
1: Yeah. And she goes also on to talk about how by not having this kind of etiquette, um, it reinforces the idea that your professors work for you. And this kind of goes back to what you were talking about with your students who feel like, well, they work really hard or they don't get a good grade and therefore they're upset with you because you didn't. Basically, and this is what she talks about, hold up your end of the bargain. And just by using um, this very simple thing of using these titles that are somewhat antiquated, um, you kind of start out, you take away that business transaction. Mm. Um, Elliot, thank you so, so much for coming on today. Um, This is Campbell Doghood. Again, we want to hear your stories of... uh, Millennial Life, hello at campadulthood.com. Uh you can tweet, Instagram, or Facebook us at at camp underscore adulthood on both of those platforms. Yes, excellent. Um and we look forward to next time.
0: Yay! Yay.